I was going to put up a Tui sign, but uh, decided against it. We better better pray for the word. Father, we thank you that your, your word is a lamp to our feet and it's a light to our path. And that God, as we sit in your presence this morning, we can receive from you afresh. And so God, I just pray that you'd just encapsulate every distraction and help us to have an ear to hear what your spirit is saying to each and every one of us. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been doing a series uh, from the book of Daniel. And Daniel is known for its great, great stories. Uh, Daniel and the lion's den, uh, the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace. Uh, But it's also known for its prophetic content and its comment on end-time events. Uh, Eschatology, the study of end-times events, tends to be divisive. It tends to be full of lots of conjecture. So I just thought, just as an aside, I'd give you my take on end-time events. Um, I want to give you three absolute certainties which I believe are scripturally sound and agreed on by most right-thinking theologians. So here you go, all right? See if they line up with what, uh, with what you're going to say. Number one, Jesus is coming again, all right? Everyone agrees with that, yeah. You can give it a clap. Jesus is coming again. Uh, without a shadow of doubt, we know that that's going to happen. Second thing, nobody knows when that's going to happen. All right? Jesus said, Jesus said, hey, not even the angels in heaven know that day when it's going to happen. So when Joe Bloggs comes and says, hey, um, the world's going to end uh, on April the 31st, uh, 2019, forget it. He hasn't got a show. You can't figure it out. Not even the angels in heaven know when that day is going to happen. So, Jesus is coming again. Nobody knows when. Thirdly, we must be ready now. All right? That simplifies eschatology. That simplifies everything. All right? So, whether you're pre, post, uh, or pan, I think a number of you are a pan tribulation. It's all going to pan out in the end. Uh, So you don't worry about it. But basically, don't spend your time uh, chasing after this theory or chasing after that theory. Spend your time in the foundations of God's word. All right. Everything else is conjecture. And if you live by those three tenets, you can't go far wrong. Daniel not only uh, gives us great stories, great lessons from those, not only gives us... um, eschatological insights, but also he gives us some great keys to living for God in a secular world of compromise. And that's what this series has been all about. And so this morning we're coming to Daniel chapter 4. And uh, in this particular chapter, Nebuchadnezzar has another disturbing dream. Uh, No one can interpret this dream, so he calls on Daniel. And upon hearing the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has had, Daniel says, if only the dream applied 
to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. How would you like to have a dream? Go to the pastor to get an interpretation and he says, hey, I wish this dream had come to your enemies and not you. You know something not that great is going to come up. You know that, oopsie, uh, let's wait for it. Basically, the, the dream warned Nebuchadnezzar that because of his pride, his mind was going to become like an animal's for a period of seven years. He would lose his authority. He would live like an animal until he acknowledged the sovereignty of God over his life. That was the, basically the interpretation of the dream. And Daniel finishes up by giving Nebuchadnezzar some advice. And he says this. He says, Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar does nothing. Imagine, put yourself in the same situation. If you had a dream, you get the interpretation, you believe the interpretation is from God, wouldn't you want to do something about it? Wouldn't you think, hey, there's got to be a way out of this. Surely this dilemma isn't going to happen. Uh, how can I... How can I do something that's going to help the situation. Well, Nebuchadnezzar does nothing. And it says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 29, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and this guy, to put it in context, he's the most powerful leader in the world today. Okay? He, he has all power, all authority. His kingdom is the largest kingdom on earth at this particular time. Okay? And he says... Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what was decreed to you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass. By for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. Just like that, he loses his mind, basically. He is thrown out of his kingship and he goes to live with the animals. After the seven years of punishment, Nebuchadnezzar is given another chance, and that's just the grace of God. That is God's goodness. And his mind is restored, and this time, Nebuchadnezzar has a right attitude for God, towards God, and this is what he says. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's writing a letter to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth. May you prosper greatly. It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. 
His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. What a turnaround. In fact, when you think about it, Nebuchadnezzar describes his punishment, his insanity, his living with animals, and then his restoration as the miraculous signs and wonder that the Most High God has performed on me. Uh, He's not bitter about what's happened, which is absolutely amazing, but he he accepts that he got what he deserved, and then he praises God. I think this passage highlights a number of things. And the first thing that this passage for me highlights is the absolute amazing sovereignty of God. That God, nobody is outside God's reach. Nobody is too high or too low to be impacted by God. Uh, Our God is absolutely amazing. He's the creator of the universe. He spoke the word and the heavens and the earth and the stars were created. Penny, could you just hand me that pointer, please? Top. Bit of a science lesson this morning. Uh, every time we look at the stars, we should go, wow. Because the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Often, we don't think about what we're seeing. When we take a closer look, we realize that they are absolutely, absolutely amazing. Uh, But when we take a closer look, we have to realize that God's ruler is a little bit bigger than our ruler. Okay, So we use centimeters, kilometers, um, meters as our measuring stick. But to measure what God has made, we need to use a light year which is the distance light travels in one year. So when God said, let there be light, light came forth out of his mouth and it was traveling at 310,000 kilometers per second. Okay, so what that means is that, the, for instance, the, the um, circumference of the earth around the equator is around about 40,000 kilometers. So in one second, if I turn a light on, and it could go round the corner, it would go round the world eight times in one second. So that's the speed of light. Okay, uh, and so in one year, in one year, if you, were turned, if you turned a bright enough light on, in one year, light would travel 9.8 trillion kilometres. That number just is meaningless to most of us. It is just absolutely so big. So, for instance, those of you who are astronomers and you see a really, really pretty um, galaxy, and a galaxy is just a group of stars, you see a pretty one called the Whirlpool Galaxy, <coughs> uh, you'd have to travel at the speed of light for 31 million years. So you want to just put that up? There sli- should be a slide of... So there, that's a pretty one, eh? So that's just a group of... Um, that's a group of stars, and if you want to get there, uh, travel at the speed of light for 31 million years. Okay, so uh, you need to sort of suspend your living for a while 
to get there in time. Um, that whirlpool galaxy uh, contains 300 billion stars. 300 billion stars. And it's just one of 80 billion galaxies in the viewable universe. Now, these numbers are just so big. They're just, they're just incredible. Despite our wisdom and all of our technology, we can't even see to the end of God's creation. The furthest distance we can see is 46.5 billion light years away. So that's um, 4.6 with 23 um, zeros after it. That's how many... That's how many kilometres away we could see. And if any of you can conceive of that, then your brain is bigger than mine. All right? Uh, but put it all in perspective. God made this. God made this. Uh, scientists estimate that there are a whole lot of stars, like five with uh, 22 zeros after it, number of stars. Uh, our universe is just absolutely amazingly huge, but it must pale in insignificance compared to the awesomeness of its creator. I mean, if you look at a couple of stars, the only star that most of us are familiar with is the, the sun. Okay. So if we have a look at um, the sun, um, it's a million times the size of Earth. So, okay. So there's the sun. All right. There's Earth in comparison to our sun. All right, and we are, we are 155 million kilometres away, and believe me, you don't want to get any closer. All right? The closer you get, the more you burn. Okay? Uh, so if the Earth was the size of a golf ball, the sun would be five metres in diameter. All right? That just gives you an idea. It is absolutely huge. Okay? But it's not the biggest, it's not the biggest star that scientists have found. There's one called the big dog, Canis Majoris. All right, so that's Canis Majoris. All right, and can you see that down somewhere there? That's our sun in comparison to that star. All right, so, so basically if the earth was the size of a golf ball, the diameter of uh, Canis Majoris would be the size of Mount Egmont. All right? Just to put it in perspective. And God made all of it. God made all of it. You see, sin has a way of shrinking God down in our minds and puffing us up in our own estimation. I mean, how many people have argued with God besides me? Why would you argue with God? Dear me, one breath in your history. Sin has a way of shrinking God down in our minds and puffing us up in our own estimation. But just a glance into the universe that God has made resizes everything in a heartbeat and makes us realize that we are worshiping an awesome, majestic God of unfathomable power and might, there is none like our God, and we're just a few of 6.5 billion people on this golf ball-sized earth in this massive universe, God is absolutely amazing. And if I had time this morning, I'd tell you a little bit about the human body, which is absolutely, absolutely incredible. 
There is nothing like it, and the way that he has made it is absolutely phenomenal. Our God allows governors and rulers and kings to rule at his pleasure. And he can replace one or promote one at any time, just as he likes. Just ask Hillary Clinton. He can use the good ruler or the bad ruler to fulfill his good kingdom plans and purposes whenever he likes. In fact, Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then it goes on in verse 4 and says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. As if to say, you idiots, you don't know what you're doing. You've got no idea of what you are saying. You see, nothing is impossible to God. If he can change a nation's ruler, he can work a miracle in your place of work. If he can impact the way that Nebuchadnezzar thinks, he can restore a fractured relationship. If he can download wisdom and knowledge to some young Hebrew men, as we saw a few weeks ago, he can give you amazing insight and creativity so that you can be everything that he's created you to be. He just needs your heart. Nothing that you are facing is too big for him. Nothing is impossible for him. He knows everything that's going on. He just wants Alfred. But for me, the, the most amazing thing about God is not the hugeness of his creation or the amazingness of his work. The most amazing thing for me about God is that in all the universe, he loves me and has a plan for my life and is, in, is concerned about the little things that matter to me. And he demonstrated this by sending Jesus to suffer and die for me so that I could have a relationship with him. To me, that is unbelievable. And that's why I can respond wholeheartedly towards him. The second thing I see from those passages that, that we've read is that a wrong concept of God is going to result in a distorted view of life. Nebuchadnezzar said, look what I've made. Look what I've done. Aren't I great? So God removed his authority and removed his blessing on Nebuchadnezzar until Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that all he had was actually given to him by God in the first place. I remember back in the 80s being asked by the senior leader of our church to do a series of study on God's finance because at that stage I was a successful business person and was earning a lot of money and he thought that I'd know a lot about finance. And the problem was that in my heart, although I was responsible for missions, I used to, I used to hate giving missions offerings. And uh, that was just because I was, a, I was stingy. And I had a poor view of God. And so when I began to study God's word, and when I began to have a look at his authority, and when I began to 
look and see what God says about money in the Bible, I realized that everything that I had was actually given to me by God. And it wasn't a matter of me just giving a tenth to God and keeping the other nine tenths for me, which was a pretty good deal, by the way. Um, it was a matter of the whole ten tenths belonging to God. And me coming to him and saying, God, what do you want me to do with the money that you placed in my hands uh, over the next few weeks and months and years? And as I studied the word of God, my mind changed and my view of God and my view of finances and godly blessing completely, completely changed. And actually, I was set free at that time from a love of money. If I hadn't been set free from a love of money, there was absolutely no way that I would have responded to the call of God when he asked me to step out in faith and take another step in terms of uh, serving him in ministry in the church. God had to break that first. Pride gave Nebuchadnezzar a distorted view of life. It gave him a distorted view of his achievements, and he basically left God out. In essence, pride says... Uh, or pride places I at the centre of our life. Just as the centre of sin is I, so the centre of pride is I. It's leaving God out and putting ourselves in. And when we replace God in our hearts and make us the centre of our lives, then this position is actually the root of every other sin in your life. Anger, murder, stealing, adultery, all have their root in pride. It results in us neglecting God's will and his word and his way and doing life our own way. You know, Frank Sinatra said, I did it my way. Unfortunately, he was right and he will end up, or he has ended up, in eternity without God. Because that's the consequence of doing life our way. Pride says, I want to choose my own way, and that is at the root of every sin. Pride breaks the very first and most important commandment, which is to put God first and love him with everything that we have. Pride won't admit it when we're wrong. Pride causes us to refuse to admit our own mistakes. You know, the three most difficult phrases to say are, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Now, they're tough. Nobody expects us to be perfect. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're not perfect. <laughs> Nobody expects us to be perfect. But they do expect us, people. They do expect us to be honest and authentic. Pride causes us to hold on to a grudge. Pride gossips. Pride judges people and puts them down and thinks we're better than others. God says that's damaging and that's destruction. And the Bible tells us that all have sinned. And if we say that we are without sin, we deceive ourselves. So everyone here this morning has or is dealing with pride to one extent or the other. Welcome to the truth. We were created 
to have God at the center of our lives. So when we are self-centered and independent rather than God-dependent, it causes conflict and we have a wrong view of our world. If you want to grow, then swallow your pride and become teachable and ask for help when you need it. Proverbs 10.17 says, Anyone willing to be corrected is on the pathway to life, but anyone refusing has lost his chance. About five weeks ago, I bought a new golf club. And uh, I was pretty pleased with this club, latest, tailor-made driver, and um, was not cheap. And so I thought, right, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go down to the driving range, and I'm going to sort this out, and it'll be different to what I've got, and so uh, I'll just work at it. So I go down to the driving range, and half an hour of hitting balls, I was absolutely, absolutely frustrated. Man, this was going nearly worse than my old club. And I'm thinking, oh no, I've spent all this money and it's going to be useless. And then a guy uh, who was putting away his cart came over and says, oh, do you want some help? And I was just desperate enough. I was absolutely desperate enough to ask for help. And I was desperate enough to ask for help because, um, because at this stage, uh, while my golf's gone backwards, I'm still getting better scores than Stephen and Kelly. And, um, and uh, being full of pride, I wanted to keep it that way. But I could see that I was going to need some absolute help. And I'm fighting a losing course, uh, cause here. And they are going to get better than me. Uh, but I'm holding on for as long as I can, guys. So anyway, uh, I got this guy and he said, OK, your you setup's wrong. And this and this and this. And you've got you to change this and you've got to change that. And so... After he'd gone, I started practicing the things that he told me. And I am hitting that golf ball further than I have for the last 15 years. And there is hope. <laughs> there is hope, yeah. There, is, there was hope till yesterday, yeah. And I went to the driving range with Stephen. And like he was smashing it about 100 metres longer than me. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, if only he could keep on hooking that ball, I'll be okay. If only he doesn't hit it straight, I will be right. But the reality is, if I hadn't asked for help, I wouldn't have had that improvement. And the same is true with life. If you don't ask for help, you're going to stay in a rut. And it's pride that causes us to be stuck in a rut. It's pride that keeps us from getting, our, getting help for our marriage. It's pride that keeps us from getting help in our finances. It's pride that keeps us from getting into recovery from an addiction or a difficulty. We have to swallow our pride. And the enemy, the enemy wants you to be proud. The enemy wants, doesn't want you to get help. Everything in our culture teaches you to think about yourself. Every commercial is saying it's all about you. We do it all for you. Have it your way. You deserve it. You're the best. Everything says focus on your image. And by the way, image is what people think of you. An image isn't worth squat. Character is what you really are. Character is who you are in the dark. Character lasts forever. 
and godly characters built over time as we become more like Jesus. But to become more like Jesus, we've got to say, God, help me. We've got to address some of the issues in our lives. We've got to swallow our pride, which is our natural sin in our life, and start to work on those areas where we've been putting ourselves first and they have been causing hurt and destruction in our lives. The third thing I see is that receiving a revelation from God changes the way we live. Jesus said, people don't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, it's not what you eat that actually builds you up. It's what you hear from God that will build you up. Romans ten seventeen, faith comes from by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. In other words, our faith grows when we hear God speak to us. In the passages that we just read, God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar through a dream. And often God will speak to us through dreams if, he can't, if we can't hear a still small voice. God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar through a dream and God spoke to him through Daniel's interpretation of that dream. But Nebuchadnezzar did nothing about it and ended up losing his sanity. But God gave him a second chance. And when Nebuchadnezzar came to his senses, he had a revelation of who God is and it changed his outlook on life. We need a regular revelation of who God is. God speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through a still small voice. He speaks to us through the prophetic. He speaks to us through his audible voice. He speaks to us through dreams. He speaks to us through his creation and through circumstances. And we need to continually develop and hone that ability to hear God's voice for ourselves. Uh, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And the whole point of our relationship with God is that it's a two-way thing, that he is speaking to us and we are speaking to him. So we have been created with that ability to hear from God. It's great to receive revelation through a messenger of his word. But God wants you to be able to receive revelation from him directly as part of your relationship with him. I remember back in the early days of my Christian walk, and I was in a growing church, in a big church, and we were getting international speakers coming. And I always wanted to hear from God. I was hungry to hear from God. And so I'd be sitting either in the first row or the second row. And when the prophetic ministries were coming and pointing out people, I was sort of getting bigger in the seat. You know, huh, here I am, etc. And they never prophesied over me. Never. I was sitting right in front of them. And time and time again, I'd miss out on prophetic words. One day I got so absolutely upset with this whole shenanigan that I said to God, I said, God, was it, why is it that nobody ever prophesies over them? And I said, and God said to me, because I don't give them anything for you. 
And I thought, well, why don't you give, give them anything for me? And he said, because I want you to hear for yourself. And I thought, what? That's too simple. <laughs> you know, when I made a point of starting to learn to hear the voice of God, I didn't have to raise up in my seat to get a prophetic word because God would reinforce the things that he had been speaking to me in private with the things that he was saying to me in public. And that'll be true of you too, that God wants to speak to you in the secret place of the Most High. You know, It says, They that dwell in the secret place of the Most High will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And we're in God's shadow because he's close to us, he's near to us, and he wants to speak to us, and he wants to tell you things. But we need to develop that ability to hear him for ourselves. The first revelation of God I ever had was at university when he healed my hand. And I knew in an instant that God was real, that he loved me, that he had a plan for my life. And that revelation has burnt in my heart from 1971 onwards. And it's still a fire in my body today. But if that was the only revelation I'd ever had from God, I would be a sorry, sorry, sorry person. Because God says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. There is a today word for each and every one of us. Don't rely on that stuff that you've gotten years gone by. Yes, it's great to be able to look back and hear what God said to us, but you need to get fresh revelation from God today. You need to get a today word that will be relevant for what God is wanting to do with, in your life today. It's amazing for me how a young mum can hear her baby cry in a crowded noisy room and I've often thought to myself how is that how is it mums that you hear your baby cry when there's so much other noise going on round about I'll tell you how because you've got an ear attuned to that baby you're listening you're on duty 24-7 and you are listening and you are waiting for that sound, knowing that that baby depends on you. We have to take that same hard attitude towards hearing a, voice, a word from God. We have to have our ears listening, no matter what's going on around about us, our spiritual ears. Uh, sometimes revelation will come out of the blue, like when I received a call to ministry at a black power funeral in 1987. But most often that revelation will come out of your relationship with him. If you believe for it, if you expect it, if you sow into it, then you're going to receive it. But you've got to be in that place where you are waiting for it. That's how we need to be expectant and listening because God is always wanting to speak to us and give us fresh revelation for our lives, for our businesses, for our relationships, our church, our neighborhoods. He says, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. 
plans to give you a hope and a future, then you will call on me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, and I'll be found of you, declares the Lord. You see, the plans and the purposes of God for our lives are found out by us in our relationship with him. As we do life with God, as we spend time seeking his faith, then he shares his heart with us. And as he shares his heart with us, he shares his plans and his purposes with us. He says, call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and unsearchable things that you don't know. He's waiting for us to call out to him. He's waiting for us to spend that time in that quiet place just talking with him so he can share those things that he wants us to walk into on an everyday basis. When you get a revelation of who God is and how he loves you, it will change the way you live and you will want others to know him too. I want you just to spend a moment and uh, just look at this very short video clip. It's about a Sunday school teacher called Edward Kimball. How many people here have ever taught Sunday school in church? Put your hands up. All right? This is about a Sunday school teacher who didn't leave his Sunday school teaching inside the church, but he decided that he would follow up some of the kids that had been teaching. Have a look at the impact that this guy, Edward Kimball, which... I would say most of you have never heard about. Have a look at the impact that he had. Came across this very interesting story about a man called Kimball. Apparently he was a Sunday school teacher who just wanted to serve God. He would show up to church every Sunday and serve faithfully in teaching the little children about Jesus Christ. He was a Sunday school teacher who had a great passion, who wanted to do more than just doing it on Sundays. So during the weekdays, he would actually follow through with all the children who came to his class on Sunday to make sure that they understood who Jesus was and to help them understand a better relationship with him. And there was one kid in his class who came from a very rough background and couldn't understand who God was. So Kimball would take the extra step in going and visiting this kid in his place of work. And they, back in those days, it was, you know, the kids were working as laborers. They would visit him at a shoe store where he worked and would tell them about Jesus and would kept persuading him about what an amazing plan that Jesus had for his life. And finally, in the back of the store, this little young kid, you know, accepts Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And his name was D.L. Moody, an amazing man of God. And because someone called Richard Kimball decided he was going to pursue it. But here's the interesting thing. The story doesn't end there. The story actually begins there. Because D.L. Moody received this incredible salvation experience and says, I got to do something about it, quits his job and begins preaching the gospel. And God uses D.L. Moody to go throughout the whole world. And when D.L. Moody was traveling in the United States, there was a man called Wilbur Chaplin who hears the message of D.L. Moody in one of the evangelistic crusades 
and responds to the message says, I gotta, I gotta do something for Jesus. And Wilbur Chapman then begins to preach the gospel himself. And while Wilbur Chapman is preaching the gospel, a baseball player who was well known in America listens to the message of Wilbur Chapman. And at the end of his crusade, he comes up and gives up his life to Jesus. And his name was Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday, right after he receives Jesus, quits his career at baseball and says, I'm going to devote the rest of my life in serving Jesus Christ. So he begins to do crusades just like Wilbur Chapman does. And as Billy Sunday begins preaching the gospel, a man called Mordecai Ham, who is a very astute gentleman, who is very refined, who is seated in his crusade, hears the message of Jesus Christ, stands up and gives his life for Jesus Christ. And this guy, Mordecai Ham, goes to a little town called Charlotte in North Carolina, and he's preaching the gospel in a tent crusade meeting. And there's a bunch of kids who are standing outside, and they're saying, we got to go in there, and we're going to cause trouble tonight in that meeting. And in that bunch of friends, there was one kid who didn't want to cause trouble, but he just wanted to see what would happen when they caused trouble. So he walked into that tent meeting to come and see what would happen when his friends would cause trouble. But as he sat there in that tent meeting, hearing Mordecai Ham preach the gospel, something within him resonated. And he said, I got to respond to this. So he went the next night, and the next night when he heard the gospel, he went up to the altar and gave his life to Jesus Christ. His name was Billy Graham. And Billy Graham, hold on, I'm not done yet. Billy Graham, till date, it has been estimated that through the ministry of Billy Graham, 2.2 billion people have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ through the ministry of Billy Graham. It all began in a chain of series with a man called Kimball, a Sunday school teacher all people who said I'm going to be devoted with the gifting that God has placed in my life I'm going to do it every Sunday sincerely I'm going to go out of my way and I'm going to tell these kids about Jesus and what he started ended up reaching 2.2 billion people and more because we're not taking into account all the other people who got saved to all the other evangelists who were saved in the process as well Never underestimate what God can do through a simple act of service that you do for His kingdom. You need to recognize that what God has given, whether you think it's significant or not, in God's eyes is absolutely significant.